Let's turn uh, to Luke chapter 12 this morning. Luke chapter 12. I am uh, copying a um, title for my sermon this morning from a front page of Time magazine some years ago. There was a picture of a Rolls Royce on the front cover, and the words emblazoned across the front cover were these, Does God want you to be rich? Does God want you to be rich? It's a good question. It's a good question. Last, last Sunday, um, Noed spoke, and he spoke from Luke chapter 12, verse 16, and so on. And I want to read that again, because it fits um, with what we're going to be talking about this morning, a little later in the uh, Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? The moral of the parable is this. Jesus said, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Does God want you to be rich? Jesus teaches us a very valuable lesson about riches here. It's hard to have them without trusting in them. It's hard to have them without loving them. The man, if you notice, I I try to emphasize the words here, the man was very possessive of his riches. It reads, my crops, my barn, my crops, and my goods. Second thing we learn from this section is that Jesus sets the record straight that the man that a man can spend his entire life accumulating things, possessions, money, wealth, etc., and it's of absolutely no value at the grave. Zero. You've heard the statement before, there are no U-Hauls in funeral processions. Third, the parable strikes at the heart of accumulating wealth for our retirement years. That's what he did here. It says he stored them up, he tore down his barns to build bigger so that he'd have even more, so that at the very end of the building program, he could sit back and retire, eat, drink, and be merry. But he wasn't going to retire. He was going to expire. So, by the time we have amassed our wealth, 
Guess what's knocking at the door? Death. Then, those, then Jesus said, whose will those things be which you have provided? Jesus calls the man a fool for being rich in this life, and he's poor for all eternity. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So again, I ask the question, does God want us to be rich? And it may surprise you, my answer is yes, he does. He wants us to be rich. Not in earthly possessions, but rich towards God. Can I ask you a question? When you die, how many think about death, by the way? I mean, seriously, how many think about death? I know that it's fast approaching for me. (laughs) I'm getting there every day. Every time I look in the mirror, I say, wow, how come I got so old so fast? When you die, how much will you take with you? Some people say uh, of rich people, oh, he died a millionaire or he died a multimillionaire. He didn't die a millionaire. He died penniless. At the end, in the grave, it's worth nothing. It doesn't matter how much he had on earth, it's worth nothing at the grave. He died empty. Paul said that. He said, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be content. So this morning, I'd like for you to listen to the, Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greatest financial advisor you will ever hear. And he talks a lot about money. You'd be surprised how much um, scripture is devoted to the subject of money from the Lord Jesus. He spoke more about money than almost any other subject. Surprise, right? Take a look at it someday. Write them down. So he's the financial advisor here. Who is Jesus? He's God. He should know what he's talking about. So I want to talk to you, because you're all at different levels. Some of you have your first job, and all of a sudden you've been bit with this um, lure of money. You go, wow, look at this. The numbers keep going up. You know, and I, I, I laugh at it, actually. Um, this is kind of an aside here, but it's amazing what people do for numbers. I write out numbers on a piece of paper, and they'll do all kinds of things for me. And I think, wow, I just gave them numbers on a piece of paper. They go, yeah, but there's value behind those numbers. Yeah, at the bank there is. (laughs) So you're in your first job, and you're thinking, okay, I've got my first job, and now I'm making all this money. And I'm putting it aside, and I'm putting it in my bank, and I'm stocking up this money for my future. Someday I'm going to buy something, whatever it is, okay? And we do that. And then as we get older, we start stocking it away in other things, in real estate, in possessions, in CDs, in, I don't mean the CDs you play, for for you who are, some some people do, in all kinds of things. But I don't know if you've paid attention to the economy in the last year or two, but many people who invested a lot of money in these ways of making money lost their shirt. So you're making your own money right now, and you're accumulating money each day or each week or each month. You're, you're getting paid, and you're making decisions. What do I do with this money 
This money is accumulating. It's getting more and more. I'm getting more and more numbers in my bank account. And what am I going to do with it? What direction am I going to take? How will I spend it? Or will I save it? For others, you're not in your new job. You've had a job for quite some time. And you're on this treadmill. You've been on this money treadmill for quite some time. And you kind of have a plan or you kind of have a way of handling it over and over again. But sometimes I think it's important for us to stop and think about what we're doing with the money that God has given to us. So what does the financial advisor tell us? First of all, the money that we have, the possessions that we have, aren't ours. In spite of what the man said in the parable, my crops, my barns, my possessions, they didn't belong to him. They belonged to God. And it's important for us to realize that, that everything we have, whether it's the clothes on our back, the food in our belly, the money in the bank, it all belongs to God. Who gave it? It was God. It all belongs to him. God, however, in his infinite grace and mercy, actually lets you handle it and do something with it. He actually gives you the responsibility, if you will, of being a manager or a steward of, that, of those resources. So you're now the boss. You have the money. It's in your hands. You can do with it as you please. In fact, in um, the passage in Acts where Paul talked to, uh, to Ananias and Sapphira about the false gift that they gave, he said, while it was in your hands, it was yours to do with as you saw fit. And so God does that. He gives us these things and says, here, you manage my money. It's not mine, it's God's, right? You manage my money. You take it. You take the possessions that are mine. I'm giving them to you. Now be a responsible manager of these funds. Do with it what you will. It's up to you, your choice. It all belongs to God, though. And so we are the manager of a part of God's resources. But since it's his, it's his money, since they are his possessions, he expects a return on his investment. So let's say you went to the bank and you talked to the financial advisor at the bank today or tomorrow. And you said, hey, listen, I want you to take a portion of my money. I'll just say it's $1,000. And I want you to do something with this to make me rich. And he'd say, okay, well, I will invest it in certain ways to make more money for you. You're giving him the right to handle your money the way he sees fit, according to whatever parameters that you've given him, to make you even more money. Well, God is doing the same thing with you. And he's saying, here's some of my money. Here's some of my resources. Now you do with it as you see fit. But he expects a return just like you would expect a return on that money invested in the bank, right? And you're hoping it's not a fraction of 1%. Okay, so what are you going to do? If you spend it all for the here and now and take no thought of investing it uh, for eternal things, I'll tell you something, you've taken an enormous loss. You really have. In heaven you will be rewarded or you will lose reward based on what you've done with the resources that God has given to you. While you have it, it's yours to do with as you please. But there are wise ways of using money 
and there are foolish ways of squandering it. How much has he given you? Let's talk about that. How much money, how many resources do you have? How much has he given you? Are you a millionaire? No. Are you a thousandaire? Are you a hundredaire? A dollarare? I'm making up these words. It really doesn't matter how much you have. Really, it doesn't. It's how faithful are you with what you have. How much has he given you? How much of it belongs to him? Well, some people say, well, you know what? I think God would be satisfied with, you know, 10%, a tithe. Give God 10%, get him off my back. Okay? Well, we would never say that. I just did, but we would never say that. We would just say, you know, give God 10%. (laughs) The other nine is mine. (laughs) Don't mess with my 90, okay? That's good, giving the Lord something. But it's not the question I asked. How much of it belongs to him? It's not the 10%. It's the 100%. It all belongs to him. We read that in Psalm 24, verse 1. It says, the earth is the Lord's. And all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. We read in Haggai 2.8, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Well, by the time we reach the end of our Bible study this morning, you will hear Jesus saying, Sell what you have and give alms. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the natural question will be this. How will I live? If I give everything away, if I give it all back to God, how will I live? How will I eat? What will I wear? I'm going to start worrying about these things. And that's what our passage is about this morning. How will we survive if we live this way? And you think to yourself, well, surely God... uh, you, know, you seriously don't think that God is going to take care of my future if I squander or, or give away what I have now, do you? Well, you know, I seem to recall a pretty good job he did of handling over a million people in the wilderness for 40 years in the desert. Um, my re- recollection of the passages remind me that they had shoes or sandals that didn't wear out for 40 years. There's no sandal maker I know today Who could make shoes like that? But God did. And they had food every day. (laughs) It was was takeout service every morning. Manna delivered to their doorstep. All they had to do was pick it up. They had to get out of bed early enough before it vanished. But they had to get up and get it. It was hand-delivered every day. I think he did a pretty good job. There's only one of you. There's only one of me. I think he can take care of of us, don't you? So let's go to our passage this morning, Luke chapter 12, verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, 
and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind, for all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of the dangers of making money is that you begin to live for money. And once you start earning money, it can become your primary goal in life, making more. There's a guy, I don't know if any of you have seen the show on TV called Shark Tank. Have anybody seen that show? Wow. <clears throat> There's one guy on there that basically loves money, lives for money, money is everything to him, and he's got, he sold a business for $3.2 billion, with a B, dollars, and he still wants more. I'm <laughs> going, wow, this is just crazy. But he's making money. He lives for money. Everything about him is money, 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 money. Earning money becomes your primary goal. Working, saving, investing, accumulating, earning, buying, selling. It seems like your whole life revolves around money. Yet the teaching of the New Testament is that we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things that we need, like food and clothing, will be added to us. If you put God first and his kingdom first, he will sure be sure that you make enough to have um, or to live on. You know, the Lord doesn't point to the children of Israel and what he did in the wilderness. He could have, but he didn't. Instead, he says, look at my creatures, the birds, okay? You may not have ever heard of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, but you've seen my birds, haven't you? They're everywhere. And every day I feed them. But guess what? Look at their nests. You don't see a silo built beside a nest, do you? You don't see them out in the morning sowing seed. And you don't see them in the afternoon with their harvesters bringing in the, the sheaves. You don't see them storing it away for the future. And yet the Lord says, look, I care for them every day. God is a very active participant in his creation on a daily basis. Some people think that God wound up the universe and then he went on vacation. It's not the way it works. He's involved on a daily basis in the lives of every human being and every creature and every inanimate object. In fact, the Bible says that he holds all things together by the word of his power. He does that on a moment-by-moment, second-by-second basis. God is very active in his creation right now, today. 
And he does that with the birds. Go look at them this afternoon. Just go out and wander. And they're eating. They're having a great old time. And they're not worried about tomorrow. They have no thought about it. They trust their heavenly father or their their creator is a better way of saying it really for them. They trust their creator. And the Lord says, I feed them. Don't you think I'm going to take care of you? You're more valuable than the birds of the air. In fact, the birds that he speaks about here are not the sparrows in this particular case. They're the ravens. And if you know anything about the the background of birds of the Bible, ravens were unholy birds in a sense. They were, uh, they're the ones that eat all the junk, okay? And they they were unclean animals, and yet God feeds them too. And so life is more than a mad pursuit of getting the latest fashion as well. And moving from one buffet table to the next. We're here for bigger business than to be the model for the latest clothing style or the next culinary expert. It's not what life is about. That's not why God saved us. God saved us so that we might serve him. And if you want to know the secret to financial planning, it's right here in this passage. If God cares so much for the birds of the air that he provides for their daily needs, don't you think he's going to provide for your daily needs too? If you gave everything to the Lord, do you think he would care for your daily needs? That's what it says. We are to be diligent in our work, of course, and earn an income. That's also clear in Scripture. But what do we do with the income that we have earned? The clear teaching of the New Testament is to work hard for our daily necessities and to put everything we can into the work of the Lord and to lay up treasure in heaven. So if the Lord told us to live this way, what's to worry about? What's to worry about? He feeds the birds every single day. He'll feed you too. Then he talks about the flowers of the field. And he talks about them having a more majestic beauty than Solomon in all his glory. Now, I am sure, I don't know if you've read about Solomon in his glory. You remember the, the Queen of Sheba came and, and she basically was breathless after she met Solomon and saw all of the, the glory of his kingdom, the beauty of the clothes that he wore, all of his servants serving him uh, daily, and, and his, the whole setup, the whole getup. And she was breathless at, at uh, meeting him. And yet the Lord says, yeah, that's okay. What Solomon had was, was so-so, you know. But look at, the, look at the, the anemones on the hillside. Look at the flowers of the field. Look at the intricate beauty of flowers that last for a day. Now that's something to speak about. <laughs> Chris and I spent a couple of minutes yesterday looking at <clears throat> flowers called daylilies. We have some daylilies in our yard. They're beautiful flowers. They're absolutely striking. And they, the reason they're called daylilies is because they last a day. They come out and they're just full of glory and the next day they're gone. And, and another one has replaced it and it's gone the following day. And they, they just keep popping up like that on a daily basis. They are spectacular flowers. They're beautiful. Some of them look like, like they have... Uh, 
I'm not a seamstress, so I don't know the right terms, but they have this fluffy stuff all around the, the, the hem of the flower. I know it's not a hem, but it looks like it to me. You know, and they have all of these seams that aren't seams at all, but they're, they're the veins of the flower, I'll call them. And they're, they're multicolored, gorgeous, gorgeous flowers. And that's just one type. And there's the roses. And I don't know how you can plant two plants side by side, and they come up, and they both smell different. They're in the same dirt. And one smells as sweet as a rose. And the other has another fragrance to it altogether. And yet they pulled it all, the Lord has done all of that. And he says, look, if you want to see something spectacular in beauty and glory, don't look at Solomon. Look at my flowers. If I clothe the flowers on a daily basis with such beauty and majesty, and yet tomorrow they're gone, don't you think I'm going to care for you? Don't you think I'm going to clothe you? Oh, ye of little faith. Yes, Lord, you will. Worrying about our daily necessities is absolutely pointless. Worrying actually suggests that God can't be trusted. That's what it suggests. You're saying, well, God, you know, I, I know you've done it for the children of Israel. You did it for them. I know you do it for the birds. I know you do it for the flowers. I'm just not sure you can do it for me. doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? But we worry. God doesn't, forget, God doesn't let the birds go hungry. God doesn't forget to put clothes on his flowers. If God takes care of the things that are his, don't you think he's going to care for you? Does he care? Well, you go back to the cross. Just go back to the cross. Does he care? Yeah, I'll say he cares. Our greatest need was not for food and clothing. Our greatest need was for salvation. And he went to the cross and he suffered and he bled and he died in our place that he might save our souls and give us a home in heaven for all eternity with him. Does he care? Yeah, I'll say he cares. If he cares for us in that realm, yeah, he's going to take care of the rest. <clears throat> Remember that the Lord has you inscribed on the palms of his hand. He bears the mark of his love for you in his side and on his brow. God will not forget you. Paul said, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Bill McDonald used to tease me, and we would talk about different things, and he'd say, Aren't you worried about that? Aren't you worried about the future? And I'd say, no. And he said, well, someone has to worry because there's precious little worry going on around here. <laughs> now, I knew he was teasing because he didn't worry very much either. How does it help to worry? Jesus asked the question, and which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you were to worry, you know, you feel like you're small and you want to grow. I'm just so worried that I'm not going to ever grow. There's nothing you can do about it. That's one of the uh, ways of interpreting that verse. The other way of interpreting it, and it fits with the, the Greek as well, is can you add any length to your life by worrying? No. 
You can't add a minute to your life by worrying. In fact, you'll probably take minutes away by worrying. So if worry won't even extend your life, why worry about the future at all? In fact, why would you worry about extending your life if it's only going to cause more worry? Think about that one. Give yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's service and he'll take care of the rest. Couldn't our life be better spent in the pursuit of the kingdom of God and his righteousness than all the shopping trips to the mall? God promised he'd provide us with all these things. So then in verse 29 it says, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. That's what the unsaved population does. But we have a father who not only knows what we need, but he deeply cares for our needs. Here's the promise. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Listen, if you seek first the kingdom of God, you throw yourself into the work of the Lord, you seek to preach the gospel, to reach out to the community, to do his service, he's going to take care of the rest. Who made the promise? God did. Why, by the way, when was the last time he ever broke a promise? He's never. You take care of God's business. What was his business? Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Let people know there is a Savior who will care for them, who has died for them, and God will take care of your business as well. He'll make sure you never starve. He'll make sure you never go naked. Two days ago, a car pulled up in front of my neighbor, Bang. You heard about Bang this morning. That's his name. My neighbor who lives across the street. A car pulled up. Three men got out of the car. Three o'clock in the afternoon, broad daylight. They went to the side of his house, jumped over a locked gate, went into his backyard, took a, an object, banged against the window, smashed the, win the sliding glass door, opened the sliding glass door, and entered into his house. His wife was there. And, her two, and there are two children. One is, I think, 18 months maybe, and the other is three months or something like that. And uh, she was upstairs taking care of the kids. She heard a bang downstairs, not her husband this time, <laughs> and uh, came flying down the stairs and uh, chased them out to the street. They got away with some of the things that he owned. She was like a mother bear with her two cubs in danger, and she was going to get them out of the home, and she did. And they got away with some of their possessions. Twice in the last two weeks, we have noticed handprints on the sliding windows of our door, of our, uh, our home on the outside. And the only way there could be finger marks on the outside in the places that they are is that somebody had to take the screen off the window. And it wasn't me. And it wasn't any of my children. Somebody is working the neighborhood. They're trying to break in, trying to steal the things that we have. Thieves break in and steal. Jesus said. That's true back 2,000 years ago. It's still true to this day. A few weeks ago, I was doing a little maintenance on the house, and as I was scraping a little bit of paint that I thought I was going to just simply touch up with some uh, primer and paint, the item that I was scraping with went right through the wood, and I thought, oh no, I have rot. And I pulled the fascia board off the uh, front of the, the house and found that the rot was behind the fascia board and behind the board that the fascia board was attached to and behind that board right down to the studs and I had to take stucco off the front of the house and repair all that damage because not only do thieves break through and steal 
but moth and rust corrupts as well. And it wasn't moth and rust. This time it was wet rot, dry rot, and termites that were breaking in and uh, having a feast on my home. Jesus said, moth and rust destroy our treasures on earth. The point is that we accumulate things that have a built-in obsolescence. We used to be able to buy appliances that would last for 20, 30 years. Today you buy them, they last seven. There's a built-in obsolescence. They build them so that they will fall apart so that you'll buy them again. Same brand and everything. The shirt I'm wearing will be out of style next year. And if the checkers aren't out of style, the color will be because every year they change the colors. Why? So that you'll buy again. You'll be out of style. I probably am already out of style. I'll sp- I'll, if, if, I don't, uh, if I'm not out of style, I'll spill sauce on it. And I'll have to do away with it somehow, you know. I'll tear it or something. But whatever I own, whatever I have, whatever we possess, it's not going to be long and it won't be worth very much anymore. And when we reach that day, when they put us under the ground, all that we have will be worth zero to us. Zero. No value. Some of you have retirement savings in stocks that have taken a terrible hit over the last few years. Real estate prices have plummeted. What you thought you had, you no longer have. And the things of value have been run over by a truck. Jesus tenderly calls us in the next verse, and he says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you a new shirt, to give you a more valuable home, to give you a new car. It's not what he says. He's got something better for us. A better bank account? No, something better than that. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you understand what that means? You're shaking your head? I'm glad because I don't. <laughs> I have no idea what that includes. I have clues, and I'll tell you some of those clues. The Bible says that we are, because we are believers, we are heirs of God. Think about that. Some of you still have living parents. Some of your parents have died, and you were heirs of your parents. You received something in a will that they left you. They left everything behind. No matter what they were, quote, worth when they died, they left it all behind. And maybe you split it four ways or eight ways or ten ways or a dozen ways. And you got a portion of their, uh, of their value, if you will. And um, you, were, you were their heir. But we're an heir of God. And it says in the scripture, we already read it, that he owns everything. It's all his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein, it's all his. He owns it all. And he says, you're my heir. And it says we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything that the Father is giving the Son, he is giving us. I don't understand what all that means or what's all involved in that. But it's incredible. It says that we are going to reign with him on the earth. Wow. So he says... Do not fear, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Our investments may fail here, but we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What's his will become ours. But for now, he says in Luke 12:33, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourself money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I want to ask you a question. How do you invest in the kingdom of God and his righteousness? How do you store up treasure in heaven? How do you uh, sell and give alms? Well, some of you have already made investments in the kingdom of God, and I want to share some stories with you uh, of how your investment is paying off. Remember that I mentioned a few minutes ago, if I went to the bank tomorrow and I said, I have $1,000, I want you to invest it in something for me, I would go back to that guy or gal, whoever it is, and I would ask them on a pretty regularly ba- regular basis, how's my investment doing? Do I have 50 cents now? Do I have $1,000 and a dollar? You know, how's my investment doing? I would want to know. The Lord doesn't always tell us when we give to him and we serve him. He doesn't always tell us. I think most of it's going to be reserved for heaven where we're going to be absolutely shocked at what he did for us. But sometimes he gives us little hints. And I want to share some of those with you. In the late 1980s and early 90s, before most of you were born, individuals and churches, including Calvary Bible Chapel, gave us some money as an investment in the kingdom of God. That money came from some of you who are here this morning. And it was a sacrificial gift. Um, some, of you were, some of you had young families at that time. And any money you gave was a sacrifice. It was an offering to the Lord. You were much younger. And it represented a real sacrifice. Some of that money was used, as some of you will remember, to purchase books. And, some of the, and those books ended up going overseas to missionaries as a, as a gift to them to use for their own personal edification and for their ministry as they ministered to um, the places where they were serving. Some of you also gave an investment of time. And you helped us to package books so that we could get them down to the post office and ship them out all over the world. So I'm going to give you a little story. In the late 1980s, early 90s, um, a missionary sent me a manuscript. His name was Trevor McElwain. He was a missionary serving in the Philippines, and he had written a book on how to present the gospel in a systematic way to the people that he was working with. And he sent me this manuscript. And I read through it, and I thought, eh, this is not so good, and I just put it aside. And then I, somebody, another missionary sent me a film called Itau. I don't remember reading, seeing the film Itau of a man who went into a tribal group in Papua New Guinea and preached the gospel using the very same method that was presented in this book, in this manuscript that uh, Trevor McElwain had sent to me. And I go, oh, I get it. I see what he's doing. And so I rummaged through my paperwork, and I found the manuscript. And there it was. I read through it, and I said, this is great. (laughs) But it was very rough. It was a very rough manuscript. So I called. He was working with a uh, mission organization called New Tribes Mission. So I called New Tribes. And I said to the guy that was in charge of the project, I said, I understand that you're putting together a book called Firm Foundations, 
from creation to Christ. And he said, yes, that's right. He said, it's gone through all of the editing stage. We're almost finished it. Now, what I did not know at the time was that they had spent all of this time and all of this money and all of this effort to put this book together, and the board of directors of New Tribes Missions had put the kibosh on it. They said, it's not going to go to press. It's too expensive. Nobody will understand it. Nobody will want to buy it. Forget it. And they squashed the project. It was, it was finished. But they decided that they would finish it anyway. They wouldn't go to press. They would just at least finish. They, they'd come this far, and it was almost done, at least finish uh, the, not just the translation, but the uh, uh, cleaning up of the manuscript. So I, I didn't know any of that at the time. I knew nothing about that. So I said to him, I said, uh, so when are you going to press? He says, well, we really don't know. And he gave me, that's a truthful answer, he didn't know. And um, I said, well, how many are you going to print? He says, well, we would like to print 4,000. I said, okay, we'll take 2,000 of them. He said, What? I said, we'll take 2,000 copies. I said, how much are they going to cost? He says, I don't know. We don't have a printer. I said, okay, I'll set that up for you. And so we set it up with a, a, a printer who publishes the New York, uh, they don't have many more, it's all online, but in those days they had the New York phone book. So they knew what they were doing as far as putting a big book together and, and printing it, and they, were, they did it in Mexico. So we set it all up for him. I said, go to press, I'll take 2,000 of them. He says, all right then. And so the project was back on on track. Now, I didn't know any of this. 25 years later, I found this out, okay? But anyway, that's just kind of an aside for a moment. So we took the book. Many of you gave uh, financially. Many of you gave of your time to put that together to get it into the hands of missionaries around the world. And our goal was that if people would take this book and understand how to teach, they could teach the people that they were working with, people would understand the gospel, they would get saved, and it would keep reproducing. I can't tell you all the stories, but I can tell you this. On a project that was about to be shelved, that book is now, there are now 50,000 copies in print. If only 10 people, it's a, it's a teacher's training manual, if only 10 people per book were taught from that book, do the math. How many people would hear the gospel? Half a million people. If it was only taught once. But as a teacher's training manual, you can use it over and over and over again. And I know that it was. I had a letter from a missionary who got a copy of the book at the time. He sat down when he got it and he read it. And he says, wow, this is what I've been missing. This is what the ministry has been missing here. And he wrote me a letter and he said, <clears throat> we were, <clears throat> excuse me, my wife and I are so discouraged that we were on our way home. We were going to quit what the Lord had sent us to do. And we were going to return home and go back to secular employment. And he says, I now see what we need to do. Thank you for sending the book. And he stayed and has had a successful, a fruitful ministry. Uh, overseas. Another man received a copy of it. His name was Paul Branson. Paul um, was trying to reach the Muslims for Christ, and he was having uh, radio broadcasts, but they were just kind of random radio broadcasts that he was putting on. He got a copy of the same book, and he says, oh, wow. He said, this is great. And he took portions of the book 
reduced it down to a five-minute radio broadcast every single day until he went through the whole book, and that was broadcast to the Muslim world and had many, many letters all across the world from people who heard it and received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Years went by. I talked to New Tribes uh, about a month ago, and this is when I heard this story. The guy told me, who was working on the project at that time, he said, you don't realize that that investment at that time, he said, had you not made it, he says, this project never would have gone through. And I don't take credit for that. I give glory to God for that. That God directed you to give, to serve, to help, to invest in the kingdom of God, that others might hear the gospel as well. He said, there are now 50,000 copies in print in 50 languages around the world. Um, Some years after we sent it out, I contacted New Tribes and I said, you know, this is a great book, but it's just too long. It just takes too long to go through it. It takes a whole year to go through it. And I said, for a North American mindset, when we're used to instant everything, instant food at the drive-thru and instant potatoes in the microwave, I said, a year is just too long. We don't think in terms of a year. We think in terms of a few minutes sometimes. And I said, is there any way we can make this book more compact in a, in a shorter version of it so that we can still preach the gospel clearly but in a more condensed way? He said, well, it's funny you should say that. He said, one of our missionaries, uh, John Cross, is working on that project right now. And he's writing a book called Stranger on the Road to Emmaus. Many of you have gone through that course here. Some of you have been saved as a result of going through that course here. And again, the word is multiplied again and again. I'd say your investment is paying off. Probably 1988, 89, I was a little frustrated with the um, type of literature that was available for evangelism. And there were little tracks, you know, one-page tracks that basically sign here and you're saved. And I didn't like those because they're too short and really didn't explain the gospel. And then you have full-length books that nobody's going to read through because they're just too long. And so I came up with this brilliant idea, and I just want to pat myself on the back for it. And it was to put together a 32-page book. That would be, and the reason for 32 pages is that you can take those 32 pages in one press run at one sheet of paper, goes through the press, prints both sides at the same time in full color, and so it just reduces your cost. 33 pages, you'd have to do that twice, and it doubles your cost. So 32 pages was the magic number. I said, let's put together this really great book, full color, uh, pictures and a a clear description of the gospel, and I sat down to write it. I was about halfway through, and uh, some of you will remember John DeLisi, who was a deacon in the assembly at the time. I was a deacon as well. He came over to the house one day, and he saw me sitting at my office, and he said, hey, we got some deacon business to deal with, and we talked about that, and he said, so what are you doing? I said, I'm writing a book, John. I said, I'm tired of these gospel pamphlets that just don't cut it. And he said, so what are you doing? I said, I'm writing a 32-page book, full-color, glossy pictures that presents the gospel. He said, eh, it's already been done. Pop my bubble. I said, it has? He says, yeah, as a matter of fact. He says, let me go out to the car. Goes out to the car. He comes back with something like this. In fact, it was almost exactly like this. It was this. Ultimate questions. He says, read this, see what you think. 
I never finished my book. 30, no, 20, 20 some odd years later, I still haven't finished it. And I said, wow, this is great. This is exactly, I, and it's better than what I would have written. I know it. And so the Lord stopped me because he already had one done. And we began to distribute them. We thought, well, we'll purchase several thousand of them and begin to distribute them. And so I want to ask you the question again. How could we do that? Well, you invested in us. You supplied funds for us at the time. And we invested it in that purpose. So how's your investment doing? That book in 1980, came out in 1987. Their first press run of this book was 100,000 copies. We had nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. They were sold out before the books were even off the press. We got into the second batch of the books. So in, in the 200,000 quantity range, we purchased some of these books. There are now 16 million copies of this book in print in 63 languages around the world. How's your investment doing? Not so bad. I'll tell you just one story. One of our contacts uh, was a man in Nova Scotia, Canada. How many of you have heard of Nova Scotia? Okay, how many of you have heard of Canada? <laughs> okay, all right, you've all heard of it. Good. Nova Scotia, Canada. It's a very small province, like a little state on the east coast. It's a little, little island. And uh, he ordered some books from us. We sent them up to him. And he was thrilled. And he would call me on a regular basis, and we would chat on the phone for about an hour. And he'd say, tell me some more stories of how the Lord is using this book. And I would tell him this story and that story of how the assembly uh, got books out into all of San Lorenzo. We covered every home in San Lorenzo. How we started to cover, in fact, covered every home in, in San Leandro. He said, wow, this is great. And he got all excited and all enthused about it. He had a brother. Uh, his brother was uh, living in Holland. They're both Dutch, and his brother still lived in Holland. And he said, hey, brother, I want to send you something. So he sent him a copy of Ultimate Questions. He said, see what you think about it. And so his brother read through, and he says, this is great. He says, I'm going to write to the publisher and see if I can have it translated into the Dutch language. And that's exactly what he did. He had it translated into the Dutch language. He was so excited about this book and the things that were going on because of your investment here at Calvary, okay, that he said, you know what? If they can reach their city, I can reach my country with the gospel. They printed six million copies of this book in the Dutch language and distributed it to every home in Holland. Yeah, I say your investment is paying off. Some of you are working at the farmer's market. Some of you in, have invested money and time to purchase and distribute books in the community. We've reached, I don't know, thousands, maybe 10, 12,000 people here in Fremont with the gospel. And you say, well, what is the result of it? I don't know, but I believe that you'll see the benefit, the dividends in heaven. I don't believe that one single book goes astray without the Lord having accomplished what he purposes. Some of you have distributed these in the community and at parades in town. So I'll end with just one more story to encourage you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and put your investments in eternal things. At the Utah State Fair in Salt Lake City, 
2,100 of these books were distributed. And they, somebody made that as an investment. They purchased the books, gave them away free uh, in Mormon territory. Somebody got a copy of this book, and on the way out of the uh, state fair, they said, whatever. Two ladies walking into the fair saw this beautiful book on the floor, on the ground, and they picked it up. And one lady said, oh, this is interesting. And she says, really, what does it say? Well, let me read it to you. And as they walked through the fair, the one read the whole book to the other. And both of them that day trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Even the books that are wasted aren't really wasted, are they? They gave it to one, and the Lord got two. Does God want you to be rich? Yes, he wants you to be rich toward God. Here's the best investment advice you'll ever get. Invest in the kingdom of God, and you will have treasure in heaven. When you die, that treasure is not worth zero. It's worth everything. That's the true treasure. The treasure we have right now ends at the grave. If you invest in eternal things, you will have treasure in heaven where thieves do not break through, moth and rust does not corrupt, and it's for eternity. Where is your treasure? The Lord said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we cry out to you to help us to be better stewards of the resources that you've given to us. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragements that you give us along the way of people that you have touched, of things that have been done in your name for your glory. And we pray, Lord, that in all of these things you might receive the glory. Thank you, Lord, for trusting us with um, your resources. We pray that we would be faithful stewards of all that you've given to us. And, Lord, that we might have treasure in heaven. And, Lord, really the treasure that we long to see is fruit in the uh, salvation of souls, that, that there might be many, many more who will be there worshiping the Lamb, giving honor and glory and saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, and casting their crowns before you and bowing before you and saying that, Lord Jesus, you are Lord. We just cry out to you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.